All right, so this morning we look to uh, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 8. And I've entitled this sermon, The Christian and the Government. The Christian and the Government. And this passage, uh, this passage before us this morning, I believe it is a definitive one. I believe it has become, uh, on the side of society, it has become certainly more relevant. But according to the word of God, it's always relevant. Uh, It has become to some the passage to tolerate compromise and evil and wickedness. And then to another, it has been used as a pragmatic tool uh, whereby people will say, well, we only obey uh, the government when it is favorable for us to do so. And then finally, to many, it has become the launch point to put the Bible down and to wage a political war in the realm of political activism. So I believe that as we look at this passage this morning, you have those things and much more taking place. But before us stands Paul's writing to the Romans, and he's writing to the Romans during the time of the Caesars and the dominant Roman Empire who waged war during this time that he's writing against the Christians. And so I want to emphasize the point that Paul is trying to make overall as we look at the specifics in this passage first, the point is that all government, all government should be a reflection of God's authority. All government should be a, a reflection of God's authority. And to a degree, all government is a reflection of God's authority in as much as they punish evil and reward good. So all government is a reflection of God's authority in as much as they punish evil and reward good. However, do not mistake this statement that I'm making this morning, because I'm not saying that all government, uh, that all government is an extension of the kingdom of God on the earth. I'm not saying that because none of them recognize the God of Israel. None of them truly recognize the one true living God, the triune God, who is the undisputed king of kings. So I am not saying that all government is an extension of the kingdom of God. There is one sole government for which you and I expect and long for and have our hope in. There is only one true government, and that is the kingdom of God, for which his believers are both joint heirs and citizens. And it is headed by the king of kings, Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of lords. So all authority is though an extension of God's authority. It's not an extension of God's kingdom, so to speak. And I'll tell you why I'm making that distinction. But it is an extension of God's authority in the temporal realm. But none of them, apart from the kingdom of God, will last eternally. And I'm getting that from several passages, especially in the Old Testament, when we look at God building his own kingdom And especially when we recognize both Psalm 2, when we recognize even in our study about Daniel uh, and the book of Daniel and those events, when we look at uh, the book of Revelation, that we know that none of these temporal governments are meant to last eternally with respect of being joined to God's kingdom eternally. For all of them, except the kingdom of God, will eventually be punished eternally for their transgressions against him. However, I want you to look at this for what it is. All authority is a derivative. 
or in direct relationship to the power of God's authority. All authority is a derivative or in direct relationship to the power of God's authority. Now, I say that because there are certainly ways in which individuals exercise power to agree with the will of God in certain moral aspects, and then some will exercise authority to disagree with God's uh, will in certain aspects. But when we look at authority for what it is, it is God, uh, it is in his character to be authoritative, to be sovereign, to demonstrate himself as all-powerful. And so all authority is in direct relationship to the power of God's authority. Even in those things with which you and I might disagree, if it is a mark of God's authority and judgment, then that authority is representative of God's authority. So it's not only that some good result in our mind, in our scheme, in our will takes place, and therefore we relate that to God's authority. That's not what Paul is teaching when he wrote this epistle. But I will say that the fact that all authority is derived from or derivative of and in direct relationship to the power of God's authority, that this transcends bipartisan politics two-party politics, or and every other government and form of government constructed by man. So the statement that I'm making and that Paul is writing to the Romans, it transcends all the governments constructed by men. Because what Paul is after is he's after the use of authority. He's after the use of authority. What does that look like in the realm of government and how should the Christian respond to that in the realm of governing bodies and authorities. Paul does not begin from this construct, however, one that has become very popular, uh, uh, not only in the world, uh, not only in uh, the eras of post-millennialism and amillennialism, but in so-called conservative modern evangelical thinking. Paul does not begin from a construct that says to rebel first and then obey when it's necessary. That's not where Paul begins. He doesn't say rebel first and then obey when it's necessary. Nor does he teach that Christians should obey every single edict that comes from the government. For earlier, Paul already wrote in chapter 12 to cling to what is good and hate what is evil. But even how we deal with the government... Listen to this, because it's tied to Romans 12. Even how we deal with the government is an act of our spiritual service of worship, according to Romans 12, verse 1. Because this passage certainly connects there. And how we present ourselves as holy and acceptable before God, as it says in verse 1 as well. So our response, our actions toward governing authority, our actions toward authority, is an act of spiritual service of worship. This passage is not a disconnect at all from what is said about the Christian's holiness in Romans 12. It is, it is an extension of how the Christian demonstrates his or her holiness. And Paul leaves no one out. So we look to our text because in verse 1, Paul says every person, he says every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. He says every person. So therefore, he leaves no one out when he called for subjection to governing authorities. 
He does not teach subjugation. He's not teaching that you are a slave to the government. He doesn't teach that you're a slave to governing authorities. But instead he is teaching subordination. That is, you know that this will end. You know that it will end in your favor. You know that these governments will be overthrown by Jesus Christ eventually. But in your time here as an ambassador, as one who is a sojourner, as one who is an alien, your residency is not in the world system. And so during your time here, you simply arrange yourself under the governing authorities, seeking to do good enthusiastically and seeking to stand for Christ where you are told to do that which does not correspond to God's will. But Paul says every person, he says every person, and he's talking about every Christian. He's talking about every Christian. So one can't be, I say this somewhat humorously, one can't be against uh, uh, particular redemption. And then in this passage, you want to define that every person doesn't mean every person. And now your particular uh, obedience versus particular redemption. So you want to look at this passage and say, well, that's not talking about every person. But when we talk about the atonement, you want to say, well, that's talking about every person. My point is that this means every Christian. This means every Christian is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Every Christian. And so now we have to ask, since we know that it applies to every Christian, we know that the hope for us is how do we continue in that? So the idea is that you want every single person to be of that order. But as we work through the passage, you're going to realize that not every person qualifies because some people are evil and some people need the government to exercise the sword against them because they are operating on a basis of demonstrative evil. They demonstrate evil. That's what they want to do. And so you'll find that there is a limiting aspect to what he's saying in verse one so far. But Paul is saying that. There is no authority except from God. He says that very plainly. For there is no authority except from God. So all, all authority is derivative from God. It comes from God. It is exercised by God. And those which exist are established by God. So God has established governing bodies. God has established governing bodies. So then the government does not or should not operate as though their authority is independent of God. So that's where we begin to go into two separate directions. When you have governing bodies who conduct themselves as though they are independent of God. But what Paul is saying is not only should that not be the case, but that authority should be tied back to God's sovereign power. But I will say this very plainly to you because Paul says it very plainly. God has indeed established governing authorities. He has indeed established governing. He has not established wickedness, but he has indeed established governing authorities. Men may breach their authority. Men may overstep their bounds. Men may fail to exercise authority at all. But God has established governing authorities. And Paul wrote authority is from God. And governing authorities rule under God's construction. They rule under God's construction. 
So let's pause for a moment here. You and I know that this is true even in the church, that there is God's authority over the church, his headship in Christ over the church. And whatever authority is expressed in the church is derived authority, meaning the word of God is the supreme authority as it is naturally expressed uh, in the church and that there are those who uh, serve as elders in the church who exercise derived authority, authority from the word and authority from God. They're not authoritative in and of themselves. They don't have the weight of anything except the scripture as the reason for which their authority can be tied back to God. And thus, in that case, we obey. But I'll tell you, here is the great hypocrisy and pragmatism of the day. So-called churches and so-called elders operate in wickedness and secrecy. They operate in wickedness and secrecy. And listen to this, because these things confuse the people. They lobby, they preach, they write books, they sell merchandise, they produce other forms uh, of platforms to convince you that the standard under which they operate is different than the government. That's what they're out to convince you of. But I'll tell you this, that as we look at the government, keep this thought in your mind. We agree with Peter that judgment begins with the house of God, not the White House. Judgment begins with the house of God. And these people who operate in this way, they do not agree with Peter. They do not agree that judgment begins with the house of God. When you point out their wickedness or their neglect, they ask for unilateral obedience no matter what. These religious men, these hirelings, they want you Listen to this. They want you to be a model citizen of God's kingdom no matter what they do. I'm talking about the religious man, the so-called elder, the so-called uh, teacher. They want you to be a model citizen of God's kingdom no matter what they do. But when it comes to the government, they want you to fight like your life depends on it. So they don't want you to fight like your life depends on it when they breach their authority in the church. But they want you to fight like your life depends on it when there is a breach in government. Now you see why people are running on a hamster wheel. This is not what Paul taught either. Paul never taught anywhere in scripture. You will not find a verse where the Bible teaches unilateral obedience to any kind of authority. The Bible does not teach that. But rather discerning obedience. That's what the Bible teaches. I will give my obedience whereby I can tie what I'm being asked to do to the word of God and to the voice of God in scripture and to God's authority as practiced. If I do not find my agreement there, then I humbly withdraw my obedience to an edict that is evil. That is true of the government and it ought to be true in the house of God. So these people want you to fight the government. They want you to fight the government, but they don't want you to fight for the church. They don't want you. They believe that the two are the same and the two are not the same. For the apostles prioritize the authority in the church. They prioritize 
the matters of the church over the government. So one should be scrutinizing the church more than they scrutinize the government. That's the issue. Paul says the government's going to do what they do. Jesus said that. They're going to do what they do. The concern is what of the church? Because the church is claiming to represent uh, the one true uh, government. They're claiming to represent it. And so even here, even here, I want, I want to tell you this. Because this has been, especially the last few years, the heart that desires to find the loopholes for rebellion, the heart that desires to find the loopholes for rebellion is openly resisting God's ordinance. Because look at what Paul says in verse 2. Therefore, he connects it to verse 1, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, the commands of God, the laws of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So Paul says that. So one can play with the hypotheticals all day long to find a reason to rebel. But even doing that is a spirit of rebellion. We're not looking for reasons to rebel. We're looking for reasons to obey. And if there are the absence of those reasons, we must stick to the kingdom's edicts. But I will say this, because this is what's missing in the political activism of modern evangelicalism. For the Christian, it is to be cheerful obedience, not fearful obedience, not fearful rebellion, but cheerful obedience to the structured ordinances of God. Cheerful obedience and humble. Listen to this humble, sober refrain. When those ordinances are illegitimate or hostile to God himself. But even in that, what you won't find here is this. We have no occasion to boast as though to hide in our own boldness. There is no occasion to boast when we have stood against an edict that was ungodly and therefore we now have to follow what God says. You want to know why? Because in Romans 12, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse one, it calls it our spiritual service of worship. It's the reasonable thing to do as a Christian. It is the normal thing for us to do. So why boast as though we're doing something on such a grand scale that no one else could ever do it and no one is expected to do it? So that's an issue because one then draws worship away from God to a works righteousness in themselves. We do not hide in our own boldness. For when we do what God has commanded us in this area of authority, we are simply rendering to him what is his. And that is his glory alone. So when we have to refrain from the edicts of the world system, then it is for his glory. When we obey, because those edicts do not transgress God and his person and his decrees and his divine will. When we can obey, we do so cheerfully. But it's not this area where everything is a linchpin, World War Three, 
declaration from us that we have somehow performed in such a way. Look at me. I've been bold and God must then be approved. That is your works and your works are as filthy rags before God, your so-called righteous works. And so Paul says, since governing authorities are established under the ordinance of God, the Christian must not have a heart of resistance because they will be in line to incur his wrath and condemnation. We see that in the passage itself. Look at it. It says, and they who have opposed, they who have opposed the ordinance of God. He's not talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about governing bodies on the earth who are kingdoms over men. But they are to be in step with the ordinances that reflect the authority that comes from God, namely moral rectitude, moral straightness, moral rightness. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. And so we look at this and we have to really think about what's being said, because I want to tell you this. God has not given the Christian a spirit of fear in your sojourning here and in your ambassadorship upon this earth. God has not given you a spirit of fear. In Romans 13, 3, Paul wrote that we should not chase rebellion. We should not chase rebellion and condemnation because rulers are not to be a cause for fear for good behavior. If you're chasing rebellion, you're not chasing good behavior. You're chasing rebellion and you're running right into the government that's supposed to crush rebellion. It is why in the wisdom of God's word, it says, do not be given to change. Do not be given to constant revolt and revolution." But simply keep the old paths, keep the old paths of obeying. So here some might say this. They might say, now, preacher, you have sold out. We hear what you're saying, but you're a sellout. You have sold the church short on this one because they would ask themselves, you mean for us to expect good and yet sanction evil? No. In fact. I believe you must answer a question for yourself if you land there after the first few verses. You must ask yourself this. Who is Lord of the church? Because that's the question in the face of government. Who is Lord of the church? The Lord Jesus Christ or the four-year election cycle? Who is Lord of the church? Is it Jesus Christ or is it the four-year election cycle? You have sold out when the election cycle... The spirit of the age informs the effectiveness of your spiritual worship. Then you have sold out because your spiritual worship rendering to God depends on what men can perform. Men who do not even believe in him. You do not render lordship to the government, but you do not withhold cheerful obedience when it is due. And Paul will hit this later. So some are this hour. So opposed to the government and in its crosshairs, not because they side with Christ, but because they side with partisan politics. And in some, they side with their own sins. And so the government's wrath by the hand of God at times, sometimes the wrath of God is not evident in the government's wrath. But Paul has something for us in that as well. 
But the government's wrath to them upon the wicked comes very close to them in their sins. So some people hate the government because the government's wrath comes down upon them because they're in sin. And they don't want to part with their sins. So they fight the government. But the government is enlisting ordinances from God. And if you are truly innocent before the government, you have no reason to fear no matter what they do. Because the condemnation you ought to fear is if God condemns you. The commendation you ought to be reaching for is if God commends you. And so ultimately, it doesn't matter how the government feels about you. And so you see that Paul is very much concerned with the eternal. Look at this in verse three. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior. We have nothing to fear if we're doing what is right. But for evil. So if you're doing what's wrong, you ought to you, you need to get lawyers. You need to lawyer up and you need to make sure that you can fight the government and win. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Well, Paul's going to give you a solution. So if the question is among Christians, you know, I'm trying to figure out things are bad out here and they are. How do I not have fear or succumb to fear of the government? That is a good question to ask. How do I not succumb to fear of the government? How do I not have fear of the government? Even if the government should begin to come after the Christians, how do I not have fear? I'll show you what it says. I'll show you what it says. If you are afraid of the government as a Christian, you should not be. You should not be afraid of the government at all. You should not be afraid of any government. And you should not give yourselves to those who simultaneously sell fear of the government and themselves as the beacon of courage. You should not give yourselves to that. They're merchandising you. They're taking your money. Let me say that again. If you are afraid of the government as a Christian, you should not be. There is no cause for fear as a Christian. You are born again to a living hope in Christ. You are inheriting eternal life. You will outlive and outlast every government regime. So you should not be afraid. And you should not give yourselves over to those who simultaneously, at the same time, they sell this fear of the government. And they also sell themselves as the beacon of courage. And so if you get their materials, you go hear them speak, you listen to what they have to say, then lo and behold, you now have this, the silver bullet against the government. All the while, they're being rich, and they have to pay taxes, and they're in bed with the government. Don't sell yourself short of this fearless life of a Christian. You should do as Paul wrote here in verse 3. So the question we asked essentially was, how do I not fear, how do I not succumb to the fear of the government? Because the government can be at times very intimidating to some. Do you know what he says? Paul says, you don't want to fear the government. Do what is good. Do what some people can't even uh, can't even address their fear of the government because they're always doing evil. So they don't know how to stop the government. But if you do what is good and I'm talking about the good in the eyes of God, you have no fear of the government. You have no fear of the government. I'm not saying you can stop their hand from trying to come and crush you. 
But what do they then deliver us to if they're successful in physically killing the body? They deliver us to an eternal hope. They deliver us to the Christ who will crush them. So it says, do what is good. And here's what you can expect if you do what is good. Look at this. Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. Grammatically, that means the governing authorities will praise you. Oh, I know that that sounds a, a bit naive because they mock the Christians. Yes, they do. But you're not doing what you do for their praise. The expected result ought to be their praise. And if you don't receive their praise, you still do what is good. It doesn't mean you throw a tantrum and rebel because you want the government to praise you. No, you want God to commend you. You want to stand before God and go, I was faithful in the face of being a, 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 a somewhat peaceful regime or a wicked regime. I did what was right in the sight of God and man without fear. And normally when that happens, normally when that happens, you will have praise from those governing authorities. That is what Paul is saying. Not always, not every time, but you should expect it every time. It is your expectation because you represent God, not the government. And if you represent the government and say you represent God, you'll be given over to pragmatism. You'll do what is evil, thinking that good may come. And so it is to do what is good and you will have praise for doing good from the rulers. You'll have praise. And you might say, well, that is not happening today. And part of what you're saying is correct. But doesn't the Bible talk about doing what we do in season and out of season? We're not waiting for the climate to be favorable to do what is right. It doesn't matter what's happening around us. Our faith doesn't rest on the spirit of the age and the world's commendation or governing authorities commendation. It doesn't rest if someone is confessing to be a Christian in the White House or confessing to be an outright pagan. That's not why we do what we do. We do what we do because God has commended us to this work. And so only the Christian can be that consistent. When the government is not commending the people for doing good, they are not fulfilling their role. But guess what? Your job is not to make them fulfill their role. It's not to make them. Well, are you saying we can't vote? You can vote, but your vote is loose. Why? Because you are an ambassador here. This isn't your homeland. You're an alien here. You're moving through a destructed land. You're moving through a land that will eventually give way to the full kingdom when God comes back in conquest. So if they're not fulfilling their role, what is what is that to you? That's the question. What is that to you? Should you fear them when they fail to act on the God-given authority vested in them? Should that be a cause for fear? Or for proclamation, for demonstration, for courage in the word of God, for spurring the fellow believers around you onto loving good works. That sounds like strength. In the same way, you should not fear anyone at all for any reason. 
you should not fear anyone at all for any reason. Because I believe tied to this passage is the same kind of fear that was being promoted in the time during which the Roman Empire existed. And so Paul comes and he puts an end to it. He puts an end to it. Do what is good and you will have praise for the same. And he tells you why. For, for it is a minister of God to you for good. The government should be acting on your behalf, but not because you voted well, not because of where you live, not because of how much money you have. It should be because you stand for him. The government then should be acting on your behalf. And when they don't, your hope is not ultimately that they do. It's that it should be that way. It should be the case. So unless you're doing evil, you should not walk around every day of your life worrying about if the government is going to crush you. That's not your concern. Your concern is I'm about the real king's business. And he will come and crush every kingdom anyway. So I'm not trying to align myself with the kingdoms of this world because then I'm an enemy of Christ. I'm trying to align myself with God's authority. That's why I say you're offering not skeptical rebellion, but discerning obedience, discerning obedience. And praise God that we have the word of God to cause that distinction for us. And I'll tell you why we do all of this. It's coming up. But I'm saying this, not only should you not fear the government, you shouldn't fear anyone. You shouldn't fear any man. Because the Bible does not sanction the fear of man. So some people are taught the fear of man in the auspices of so-called church. And then when it comes to the government, their fear is simply being taught to be increased. So they live their whole lives in fear of man, religiously speaking, thinking that that's Christianity. And then they live their lives in fear of the government. So their whole lives are based on fear. And if you have fear, you will eventually succumb to cowardice, sin, lying. Self-preservation. You will abandon love because fear and love cannot coexist together. True love in Christ. And where am I getting this from? Well, Paul wrote later in uh, he wrote in Corinthians. He wrote in Corinthians not to fear men. Well, why? Why should not fear men? Well, because you've been made free in Christ. You've been made free in Christ. I get that from 1 Corinthians 7.23. He says, you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. He says, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Now, he's dealing with the individual, and you can work that from the individual all the way to the institutions. So nowhere is the Bible disagreeing with itself and calling for people to become slaves of anyone. To be in subjection means that you are giving willing, willing, cheerful obedience. Jesus himself said in Matthew 10, 26 to 28, that nothing hidden will remain uncovered. Jesus said that. Do you know why he can say that? Because he's going to be the one to expose it, which means he sees all things. So I believe that many people who are calling themselves Christians today are trying to do the work of the Holy Spirit, which is not their work to do in this way. They believe that nothing will be revealed that's evil unless they themselves do it. 
And then some practice as though all the evil they do will never be exposed. But we went through Matthew 10 and the one thing we realize is it's all coming to light. It will all come to light. You should not fear the cloak of secrecy that wicked rulers use to wield illegitimate power. I'm not saying you don't expose it. You expose it. But I'm saying you should not fear it. You should not fear it. And even if you miss something is the point I'm making. Even if you miss something, because we don't know all the evil that takes place. My point is, you don't have to be concerned that it will never come to light. Because God says that everything evil will come to light. Everything evil will come to light. God will uncover it all. And listen, he'll uncover it in the so-called house of God first. Judgment begins with the house of God. It doesn't begin in politics. It begins in the house of God. So the house must be in order among the Christians first. So let me help you with this. You may be asking the question or you may not have thought of it. How then do I move away from fear? If there really is fear, because I believe that those who will hear this are really in a situation at times where there's a temptation to fear. There really is, especially over the last couple of years, a temptation to fear. You don't know what's happening. You don't know what's uh, you can see certain things that are moving in a direction. But how do we move away from fear? Not pretend that there aren't circumstances in front of us that could cause fear. But how do we move away from that? Well, it is, again, the same answer. It is to do good, to do good. I'm not talking about just good deeds to earn righteousness. I'm talking about the good deeds that the Christian is given to do as uh, part of uh, part of what God has decreed in their lives in Titus, part of their being cleansed of righteousness and sanctification and part of those things that they're doing to lead to the righteous uh, reign of Christ himself. So it is to do good. And listen, as I said it before, it's not for the expectation of earthly praise. It's not for the expectation of earthly praise. He says, for it is a minister of God in verse four, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. And then look at what he says. He says, therefore, it is necessary. It is necessary. It is necessary. This is why I said we're going to look at what the passage says and draw what we believe from what the passage says. It is necessary to be in subjection. Not only because of wrath. So it's not because of what the government can do. That's not the big one. But it's because of conscience sake. It's for your conscience. You want a clear con- The Christian wants a clear conscience. A clear conscience informs you that you've done everything that you could possibly do in agreement with the will of God. You could do no more, and yet you are thankful for what he has caused you to do, and there is no hesitation and no regret. You have no regret. For conscience sake, you're in subjection. He says for conscience sake. So you have for even when they, when, when they turn on you, Because you don't do this for the expectation of earthly praise. When they turn on you for your doing good, you still stand free in Jesus Christ. You're still free in Jesus Christ because you have a clear conscience. No one who is outside of Christ has a clear conscience. 
Some have a seared conscience. Some have a branded conscience. But none of their consciences are free. But if you're in Christ, you have a free conscience. You have a clear conscience. And you're a joint heir with him in the everlasting kingdom. You already have a kingdom. Why fight and pretend that the kingdoms of this world belong to you and you belong to them? So there's a very important point that I want to make related to the text itself and related to the connection earlier in Romans. He says it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. You cannot preach against antinomianism, which means to be against the law. You cannot preach against that in Romans 6. And then say we should be those who sin so that grace may abound and yet practice evil against the government so that good may come. You cannot hold yourself out as this staunch so-called Calvinist who believes, and I'm talking about the whole lot, who believe. I have no problem with the true sense of what it means to hold to the doctrines of Romans as they're taught. I have no problem with that. But I'm saying you cannot preach against antinomianism, this idea that let me sin and do good so that grace may abound. Uh, God is gracious, I'll just sin. You can't preach against that in the arena of salvation and practice that same thing in the arena of sanctification when you deal with the government. You can't do that. And so many today are doing that. They're saying, well, salvation is on these terms and you cannot act as though that you're not saved by grace and you can't just simply sin so that grace may abound. And when it comes to the government, they want to sin, sin, sin so that they can bring about a positive result for Christians and get the government off everyone's backs. And I'm talking about on a national scale, at least. You can't preach against antinomianism in Romans 6 and say you hold to the true features of salvation and yet practice evil against the government and say, we hope that good may come. And I say that because Paul was charged falsely with teaching this by his opponents in Romans and elsewhere in the New Testament. And listen, he did not teach it anywhere. He refuted it everywhere. And he did not allow for Christians to practice this in any area of their lives. That's why he keeps saying over and over again, do good. If you want a positive result, so to speak, from the world system, you're not always going to get it. But if you do, do good. Don't do evil, because if you do evil, you're going to run into the authority that's vested in the world system by God to crush those who do evil. So you don't want to be crushed with those who do evil. You want to be among those who are doing good, who are following, who are following the laws and who are obeying the ordinances of God. But also we can't pretend that no ordinances exist that are from God. I don't care how wicked the regime is or how peaceful they claim to be. There are still some ordinances that you can obey that represent the authority that comes from God. It takes great courage in Christ to live righteously in wicked times. It takes courage. You then understand why it's so important not to be paralyzed by the fear that people are selling to remove courage in living righteously. You don't want to lock your arms with people who are not living righteously and representing the same kingdom as you are. 
You don't want to lock arms with them. You want to lock arms with those who are living righteously in wicked times. And sometimes that may mean a refrain from a government edict, but that doesn't mean that look at me, I'm the champion because I refrain from the government edict. No, you were supposed to refrain from it. That's your act of worship. Now, if you're drawing it away from the worship of Christ and the honor of God, then the act of worship is done away with. You've received your reward in full, no matter how courageous you think you are. But it does take courage to live for Christ in wicked times. But listen, this is a courage the Christian possesses. You, if, if you're a believer, you have this courage. You here have this courage. Well, why? Because you are indwelled by God's spirit, not a spirit of fear. You have this courage. There are many who want to take it away from you, but you have it. The governing authorities are ministered to you for good. And yet they are also the sword of God's wrath against the wicked. They are a sword of God's wrath against the wicked and those who practice evil. Sometimes people are in political activism because they are wicked. Not because they're good. Not because they're doing good. And by good I mean they're declared righteous by God. It is because they're wicked. They're evil. They want to attack the government because the government is on hot on the trail of their sins. And so they want to fight the government. They want you to join the fight. But the point is, the real war is won when you do good. When you do what is right. When you have gathered in fellowship during edicts from the government to not gather together and you've done it with the conviction of God's word. You haven't boasted about it. You haven't went on a campaign trail to tell everybody you met. When you have done it because you were convinced the word of God said that we ought to meet and fellowship together. When you have done that. When you have done that, you have acted courageously. In glory and praise to God. Because that's the kind of courage it takes. But it's not the flip-flop. It's not the one moment the government's right, depending on who's president. The next moment, I don't want to obey this president. I'm angry. Okay, this president says something. I want to obey them. That's how the world acts. Their conviction is based on what's happening outside of the word of God. Your conviction is based on what's happening inside of God's word. And therefore, you act. And so all of it that you do well is because... You have not only God's spirit, but you have his sanction from his word. Now, listen, nowhere in this passage does it say we must usher in established governing authorities. Nowhere does it say we must usher them in, because in verse one, it it says those which exist are established by whom? By God. So man is not going about establishing these authorities. So the false teaching of our millennialism and postmillennialism, it is that it is false teaching because those are other agencies religiously so that are established by man. Saying that they want to bring about a result for God, where what's being taught here is Paul is saying that, no, these entities are established by God. You can see everywhere at every point in Romans that we have walked through where man stops. And if he's reading Romans. In the flesh, he stops and says, I think God needs help here. 
He needs help with government. He needs help with Israel. He needs help with this doctrine. He needs help with this. Because quite frankly, I find myself in disagreement with him. But if you're in disagreement with God, you're an evildoer. You're practicing evil. It does not say God needs our help to establish rulers for this purpose. He doesn't need our help. He doesn't need our help. God himself establishes in the wisdom of the word. He establishes and dethrones whom he will. We find that in the scripture. The Christian is called to do, called to do all that accords with righteousness. The governing authorities, they avenge those who suffer at the hands of unrighteousness. Now listen, we are not saying that today what some might say. We're not saying that you do nothing except wait. Because some would charge even what I'm saying this morning. Some would charge that that's what I'm saying. And then some might go in the other direction and say, well, we ought to take up arms. We ought to take up arms. We must take active and aggressive means against the governing authorities to straighten them out. But it's neither one. Paul goes to the conscience. And some are so restless against the government because they're restless in their conscience. The government, most of the time, they're not even thinking about the people who are thinking about the government. But their conscience is so restless in sin that they can't stop thinking about the government. Because therein you find God's ordinance. Since they won't open the word... They're chasing after the government because that's the only other expression of ministry by the hand of God. When you do not walk in a clear conscience about yourself, you are restless. You will be restless. The first sign is, as I've said before, if you will not allow yourself to be tested and measured by the scripture. And repent in light of any sin that you've caused. Why are you telling the people to raise their blood pressure against the government? You won't be tested yourself. Why do you want people to test anything at all? You cannot get people up because this is what Romans is all about. It's all about righteousness and sanctification and justification, all those things. You cannot get people up in arms against the governing authorities on some subjective feelings based and pragmatic principle. While as soon as somebody challenges your quote unquote eldership and your quote unquote authority by the objective word, you want swift and blind allegiance. You want them to test the White House. But as soon as they test you, you say, well, we better have you obey. And we're going to make sure the conditions are right for the taking. Again, judgment does not begin with the White House. This is Paul's whole point. This is why I believe this is at the end of his letter. Because he's dealt with everything else. And now he's just saying, well, these are the more practical things that flow from the theology of what I've taught. And here's how you should think about conducting yourself in the world. He doesn't put this at Romans 1. This isn't in Romans 1. Romans 1 already assumes that man has breached every authoritative uh, regime that's ever been put in his face. But you can't get them up in arms and then you won't let them test you. They can test everybody else, but they can't test you. Paul says that the conscience is at stake when doing what is necessary to be in subjection. That is the heart of the Christian. 
That is the attitude, subjection first. Again, not subjugation, not self-pity, not self-degradation. And you're not motivated by wrath. You're not motivated by wrath. Isn't that a blessing? Because when you're not motivated by wrath, you have no cause for heightened fear. You have no cause really for heightened alarm. Most people are fearing the government because their whole eschatology is off. So they fear the government. They've bestowed lordship on the government while saying the government isn't God. But you're not motivated by wrath. You know what you're motivated by? A clear conscience. If you don't have a clear conscience, you will be motivated by wrath. And what does a clear conscience produce? Verses 6 and 7. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing, rendering to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. We can even go to verse 8 here. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. What does a clear conscience produce? A proper attitude. But also proper duty. Proper duty. When you have a clear conscience, you perform proper duty toward the governing authorities. Proper duty. Not blind duty. Not just you do anything. Some people are only fighting against the government because they have fear of man for their earthly heroes. And their earthly heroes are telling them to fight the government. And they have no idea why they're fighting the government. But what ought to be produced from your sanctification and a clear conscience is proper duty, proper duty toward the government, giving them not what is due to the Lord and his church. You're not giving them what is due to Christ. You're giving them what is due to them. You're not giving the government worship and praise. You're not giving to any man worship and praise. It's as I say, some are so busy worshiping and fearing man that the government, all they see the government is, they see the government's a threat to that. The government is a threat to the, uh, to the personality, cultism, and worshiping of man. So they fight the government. But the government isn't a threat for those who are in Christ. They're not a threat. Oh, but they can kill us. They can shut us down. Yeah, but they, can't, they can kill the body. They can't kill the soul and spirit. They can't cast us into hell. And they can only do what God allows. They can only do what God allows. So we ought to be fearless in that reality. You're giving to them what's temporally theirs. What's Listen to that. Temporally theirs. Temporally expected. So be it when your life ends, you have rendered to them only what is temporally theirs. Jesus talked about this in the same way. You give eternally to Christ what is his. You are giving them in, uh, what, what is theirs in line with how they ought to function before God with respect to government. Listen to this. There's no anarchy here. There's no pragmatism. There's no statism. There's no cult of personality. There's no hero worship. There's no need for you to gently move God aside so that you can establish the best form of government that suits you. And listen, these rulers are not lords over men. Paul says it here. They're not lords over men. So when they act as lords over men, you can remind them with a clear conscience that is not your role. 
You can remind the ones who are in the church acting like they're lords over men. That is not your role. Before we can even have a conversation about election cycles, before we can have a conversation about anything at all, you need to understand your role. And your role is that you're a servant of God. You're a servant. You're not a public servant. You're a servant of God. Well, I don't believe in God. No, you don't have to because he'll judge you for that. I hope you repent, but you're still a servant of God because he created you and he created you for this role. And so here's what the expectation is for that role. They're not lords over men. They're servants of God and their devotion and allegiance is in that service. So guess what you're holding them accountable to being servants. of I'm not I'm not voting for an elder. I mean, I don't even know what that means half the time. You're a servant of God. Lay aside the vote. Whoever's in there, that's your role. That's your role. And when you fail to fulfill your role, I'm going to remind you that that is your role. You had better be in step with that role. That's the role that you need to fulfill. So their devotion and allegiance is to that service. And when they don't perform as they ought, according to what it says in verse six, because so many wicked rulers don't. That's why they're wicked rulers. They don't. You can expect that God will remove them. Listen to the expectation because we've seen it. You've seen it in your lifetime. How many rulers have you found yourself under? They change so much. You can expect that God will remove them at his timing by his hand. Daniel 2, 21 says, and we studied Daniel, God sets up kings and he deposes them. He sets them up and he gets rid of them. You can expect that. But what you can't do is say, I'm only going to obey the ones I like. And I'm going to disobey the ones I don't like. Because what is the standard? Your feelings? How you feel? Paul does not in verse 7 command fear when before he said the Christian had no occasion for fear. When he says to render something. He also shows how discernment is involved because you are rendering to those you are rendering to those for whom it is due. That is discernment. Are they worthy in the in the in the service sense, not in the salvation sense? Are they worthy in their service of what is due to them? You're not blindly rendering to everyone what you think is theirs. That's the problem. You don't render simply according to the office. You render on the basis that God's authority is coming through and God's authority is achieved and you render to them what is theirs. You render what is theirs. You do not respect blindly. You do not respect blindly. You do not respect uh, respect blindly. You do not simply render your taxes blindly. You do not provide this uh, the custom, which is an indirect tax on goods. To anyone. This isn't just to anyone. That's what you have to understand. But it's not that you get to pick them. It's that you're discerning what's in front of you. And you're saying, are they honored? Are they are they to be honored in this way? So the fear he talks about is reverence. It's reverence. Listen, you have to be discerning because not every tax is meant for the Christian. He did not command for Christians to pay the Roman pagan taxes. He didn't command for Christians to pay the pagan taxes of the temple that would signify allegiance and worship to Caesar as Lord. 
Instead, he said, pay the municipal and societal taxes. So that takes discernment. Well, which taxes am I paying? Which things am I lending myself to? None of this is blind, not in the house of God or in, gov- or in society and government. You honor the rulers not as lords, but as men made in God's image to perform tasks given to them by God. You have that standard most of the time better than the people who are practicing their role. You know what they're supposed to do better than they know what they're supposed to do. But I want to remind you the way in which phobos, where we derive our English term uh, phobia, the way in which it's used, fear to whom fear, it speaks of respect and temporal reverence. There's a dignity and there's a dignified approach that you start with. That's your approach. You start with that. Sure, let them prove you wrong. But you start from that standpoint. I want to honor them. Whoever's there, I want to honor them. And if they're dishonorable, you can't honor the dishonorable. Paul is not saying render to the dishonorable honor. He's not saying give to those who uh, who are not to be temporally uh, respected the respect. He's not saying that. He's not saying pay every single tax known to man. Figure out all the tax codes and just pay all the taxes. No, he's Marching through distinction, you give tax to whom it's due. You give reverence, and not the worship sense, but you give respect and honor to whom it's due. And he just marches down the list. That takes discernment. But he doesn't also say withhold it based on what's happening on a four-year election cycle. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. And then he goes back to the excellent way that we studied all the way back in Romans 12. And I want to end here. He goes back to the excellent way. I believe it is the Christian's responsibility, so to speak, to do these things in the most excellent way. We don't always do as we ought. And we confess our sins when we don't. But the the goal is not to do this begrudgingly. It's not to do this when we feel like it. It's not to do this in frustration and anger. It's to look for ways to do this in the excellent way. And then guess what the alternative is? If you can't do it to someone who is wicked and doesn't deserve it nor is worthy from this, and all their edicts come from a place of wickedness, and you can't obey any of it, guess what you're left with? I get to obey God and his kingdom. Now I have to do exactly what my king says in his kingdom. I was trying to do it based on derived authority that is vested to these people coming down to me. And so I now want to obey that. And when I can't, then I fall back on obeying God's kingdom. I fall back and I obey God's kingdom, which is the greatest kingdom of all. So he goes back to the most excellent way and listen to what he says, because this is what's missing. And we'll talk about it next time. Oh, nothing to one another except love. Oh, nothing to one another except love. This call to love one another in the face of ruthlessness and coldness in the realm of our sanctification playing out toward government authorities. Let's pray.